Good morning. I'm happy to be here with you guys this morning. And as I get myself set up, I give anybody permission. If it's kind of chilly in here, if you need to go get, you know, some coffee, some tea in the back, um, whatever. The tea's delicious this morning. Our hospitality game is lit. Uh, <laughs> Post Thanksgiving, we are coming in strong. It's actually one of the best things about um, about preaching. Uh, and it's also it's a benefit, sort of auxiliary benefit of coming to Sunday school. You get here and you can sort of preview um, the hospitality table before all of the children attack it. Um, so there's a plug for coming early, guys. Um, I want to I want to start off by telling you a little bit of something that I used to do when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, I would spend some weekends with my grandmother. Uh, who I called Nana, I still call her Nana, she's still alive, and, um, and I have lots of memories of those weekends, in no small part because I was definitely, and I can say this now, but I was definitely spoiled, right, I was definitely spoiled by Nana during those weekends, um, that was the time that I had, like, my fill of chocolate chip cookies, right, all you can eat at Nana's, um, she always had the quarters for those little gumball machines that were in the grocery store, you know what I mean? The ones that mom said, absolutely not. Nana had quarters for those, like ready to go. Um, it, it was things like that that, you know, those are some of those things that I remember from the time, times with Nana over the weekends. One of the memories uh, I also have of Nana, and I'm just keeping track of the time here. I'm not keeping up with my Black Friday deals, by the way, on my phone, um, though I do want to know when those come in. One of the memories that I have of Nana uh, is that I would go to church with her. You know, she attended a different church than the church that I went to with my family and that we usually went to anyway. And of course, as a child, I wasn't paying much attention to what was happening theologically. Nana was a, a young, young child. But there, weren't, there were some things that I picked up on and some things that stuck with me. For instance, we always seemed to be running late. Always. And I vividly remember the, the ushers and the white gloves that they wore when they escorted us to the empty seats that were, you know, always in some awkward spot. The seats that nobody else wanted, those tend to be like these two front rows. And those were, that's where the latecomers had to, had to sit. I remember having to do that. I remember the fans that were in the back, you know, the back of the pews. Um, and, and it was like, if you didn't get one of those fans and it was summertime, boy, it was going to be a long day. You just hoped for one of those fans. I remember that if Nana saw that I was dozing off, she would start like passing me sticks of gum uh, during the service. I don't know if that happened to any of y'all. I don't know what, I don't know if there was like a lot of sugar in the gum or if the act of chewing is supposed to wake you up or something, but I got past a lot of Wrigley's, you know, when I was a kid. And I do remember some of the content of those services, certain songs and phrases that were repeated and really ingrained in the whole congregation. And one of those is a phrase that you might have heard um, growing up. It's not something that, um, that we say a lot here. It's not something, I want to be clear, this is not something that is found in the Bible. It's just one of those you know, phrases that sounds about right. It goes like this. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. Let me say that again. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. And I remember that was one of those phrases 
that we just heard a lot. And, and definitely as a child, the first part of that certainly rang true, mostly because my prayers consisted of toys and snacks. So he may not come when you want him. I was like, yeah, I get it. Um, that sounds exactly like the sort of quasi-religious thing that I tell my own girls around Christmas time, right? Like, oh, you prayed for an American Girl doll. Well, he may not come when you want him. And at 150 bucks a pop, um, I'm not exactly sure when the right time's going to be. <laughs> right, but as an adult, I can be more gracious to that phrase. I think it's a saying, it's meant to be comforting, right? It, it assumes that, that God is at work, but that his timing may not match our timing. And that's reasonable, right? There's a bigger assumption too, namely that God is interested in taking a set of facts that seems destined for failure and turning them around. And, and I don't know about you, but to me that seems, it seems possible. It seems plausible in as much as it applies to simple stories, uh, meaning, you know, when things get really desperate and the circumstances are really just, they seem too much to bear, could a saying like, he's always, he's always right on time, could that bring us comfort? More than that, is it true? Right, I bet there are plenty of situations in, in real life that you think are too complex or too drastic, not just for a saying, but for God himself to intervene. And whether or not we believe God is sovereign, uh, whether or not we believe that God has a plan, that he is indeed right on time, these are the stories that we're drawn to. Stories when things are, are headed off a cliff, so to speak, and then they get turned around. Right? These are the movies that, that we're drawn to, movies filled with tales of people that are filled with terrible circumstances only to eventually be rescued. Right? Think about zombie movies. And here's a disclaimer, if you've never seen a zombie movie, I'm about to spoil every one of them for you. Um, Here's here's kind of how zombie movies go. Life is normal, then weird things start to happen, death and destruction ensue. Finally, ah, a hero emerges with a super obvious vaccine that was somehow overlooked by the best scientists in the world, and finally, humanity is saved. This This is truly every zombie movie. And that brings us to the study of Judges. How's that for a segue? It's not that Judges is about zombie vaccines, right? But it's the story of an entire nation of people facing dire circumstances only to be rescued in the end. And throughout the study of Judges that we've been in, that Matt referenced just a few minutes ago, we've heard about how God raised up a judge, a leader, from among the people of Israel to bring them out from under the hand of whichever enemy was oppressing them. Now, keep in mind that the reason the Israelites, the chosen people of God, were oppressed in the first place is largely due to the fact that they've fallen away from God and refused to keep his commands. And we've seen that almost all of the judges followed a similar pattern. They tend to be really, really pious when they first receive the call to step up and lead their people out of persecution. But at the first sign of victory, they begin to take the credit for the redemption. This goes on for generations, generations after generations. And if you're visiting Trinity for the first time, as I know we've got some some visitors out there, I urge you to go online, um, download the sermons on Judges to get caught up. Um, These are, are really amazing stories about what God will do for his people. 
over and over again. God tells a judge what he's going to do for his people, for the people of Israel, and then he does it. So the question today is whether we can see what God is up to, not at the, at the 40,000 foot level, right? but when we zoom in. Right? Not when we're looking at an entire country being oppressed, but when it comes down to individual people, Individual people with real names, who have real life struggles, who have to make decisions that have practical consequences. Can we see what God is up to then when we zoom in? So there was a man uh, from my grandmother's church who seemed to encounter, I mean, just one set of messy circumstances after another. And maybe some of you can relate. I think we can all relate uh, a, a little bit. After dropping out of college, he joined the military, Um, but he left the military, no real glory to speak of, and uh, little more than his disability benefits. After that, for a number of years, he held a steady job, had a family, but he fell into habits of substance abuse, sometimes not even having a consistent place to live or to sleep at night. Separated from you know, the, the little family, the small family that he had. He moved across the country. He was going to try to rebuild. Uh, and while working door-to-door sales, this man was actually caught in the crossfire of a drive-by shooting. While in the hospital, he didn't, he didn't die. Praise God, he didn't die. Uh, but while in the hospital, receive, uh, uh, recovering from the gunshots, he received a tainted blood transfusion and contracted a debilitating and incurable disease. So if you're talking to this man, it probably wouldn't do him any good to point out that during the same time that he was struggling, the average income in the U.S. increased by 22%. Or that life expectancy for men uh, increased actually by 8.6 years over his lifetime. This man was just hanging on, wondering... What is happening to me? And when things go from bad to worse, you know, does God have a plan? And not just a macro plan, but a specific plan that I am a part of. When times are at their darkest, and this is the question for us, can God pull us through? And can he do it in a way that makes us better for having faced those challenges? The book of Ruth is a story about one small family during the time of Judges, a time that was dramatic and chaotic. And as we're about to see, for this family, things go from bad to worse. But we're also going to see that God does indeed have a plan. And that plan often involves the least likely of characters. So today we're going to spend nearly all of our time in the first two chapters of Judges. Uh, or, sorry, not the first two chapters of Judges, the first two chapters of the book of Ruth. Uh, It comes right after the book of Judges. Uh, It's in the first third of the Bible. And there are some Bibles in the the aisles. Um, If you need one, you can grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you uh, you this morning. Now, um, I would love for you to to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from uh, Ruth chapter 1, the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So today we're going to read through almost every verse um, in... In chapters 1 and 2, I'm not going to make you uh, stand up and sit down each time, but we are going to look at nearly every verse in the first two chapters. Um, and there are three major points that I'm going to keep coming back to. But before I give them to you, don't, don't pick up that pen just yet. Before I give you those three points, I want to make sure we fully appreciate the crisis at hand that we learned about in just the first five verses. We've already already seen lots of information. So first... There's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem actually means the house of bread. Uh, So how insulting that a famine would strike this land, the house of bread. This is also perhaps the first glimpse in the book of Ruth of of God's hand at work. And if you are taking notes, this is the first point. It's that God's plan is at work. God's own hand is at work. We're going to come back to that several times, but for now, I'll say that that God has power over nature in ways that go beyond our understanding. Earlier texts in the Bible, in uh, books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, it it makes it clear that in those times, famine is used as a punishment, actually, for, for, for falling away from faith. So, again, the first thing we learned here in the book of Ruth is that there's a famine. Second, we learn that this man, Elimelech, he decides to take matters into his own hands. That's kind of a, a subtle thing there, but I want to point out. So if famine is punishment for falling away from faith, well, what's the answer to that? Well, it's seeking the Lord. But rather than seeking the Lord, Elimelech decides he's going to deal with the very practical matter of finding food. So he leaves Bethlehem. Right? It's a further rejection of God. He leaves Bethlehem. And worse, he goes to Moab which is a country just to, the, just to the southeast. Now, if you haven't been with us during the sermon series, um, I'd say go back and listen to the sermon about a judge named Ehud. Um, long story short, I'm not going to get into all the details, which are pretty fascinating, but long story short, um, at the time there's this Moab, uh, this Moabite king named Eglon. Uh, Eglon is oppressing the Israelites, and Eglon, by the way, is a big boy, uh, a big boy, like Jabba the Hutt, big boy. Um, Ehud comes along, stabs Eglon. Eglon is so big that the sword goes completely into him, handle and all, and he dies, right? It's a mess, uh, both literally and figuratively. Um, Ehud gets away, kills more Moabites. Needless to say, there is no love lost, between the Jews and the Moabites. These two nations do not like one another. So Elimelech has to feel pretty desperate to go to Moab in search for better fortune for his family. Now, we don't know how long they're there, but after some time, the patriarch of the family, Elimelech, uh, he dies, leaving his wife Naomi and the two sons, Machlon and Kilion. 
Remember, the theme here is we're going from bad to worse. So now Naomi is a widow, a particularly vulnerable class of people during these times. Adding insult to injury, they have to bury Elimelech in Moab. He's he's hundreds of miles away from his home country. Uh, Burying him in Moab, that would have been considered an unclean land. It would have been considered even more punishment on this family. At some point, both sons marry Moabite women. Also, by the way, something that was forbidden by the law because they don't serve the one true God. This is a problem. I want you to just appreciate that this is just insult heaped on top of insult, heaped on top of insult, right? And next, after being married for about 10 years, Maclon and Kilion both die. And I want you to note here that neither one leaves children. So it certainly would have been assumed that their wives, Orpah and Ruth, were barren, which is also considered a punishment by God. Like, there is no, there's no silver lining in this story yet. And this is just, we're only five verses in. In five verses, we have famine. We have rejection of God. We've got trip into, uh, a trip into a country where you're sure to be hated. The patriarch dies, leaving a widow and two sons. He's buried abroad. Two marriages that are against the law. Both sons die after 10 years with no kids. Right? In some ways, the stories from the book of Judges were a little bit easier to digest because you hear things like the Israelites were oppressed. Well, that doesn't feel as personal to me anyway. Right? The book of Ruth is personal. We are now drilling down to a family. This is where the rubber meets the road. So let me continue reading. Uh, I'll pick up in verse 6. Then she, talking about Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, right back to their home, back to the home of the Jews. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? You know, therefore, would you wait until I marry someone new and have sons that you can marry? Oh, I'm too old for that. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she, this is Naomi, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi, I think, is doing the reasonable thing here. Somehow she learns that things have picked up in her home country, that that the famine is over, and she's uh, determined to return. She is, after all, a Jewish widow in a foreign land. If she's going to have any chance you know, to eke out a decent life, it's more likely to, to happen back in her home country. 
Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, they've been together for at least 10 years, so surely they've grown close. It must have been hard for her to do, but Naomi is trying to do what's best for her daughters-in-law. And and right here, she exhibits the other two points that I want to point out uh, to you uh, to get out of today's sermon. Remember, the first point was that God's plan is at work. The second point is that he often uses the least likely people to fulfill his plan. That's the second point, that he often uses the least likely people to fulfill his plan. Naomi was an unlikely hero. First of all, she's a woman in a completely patriarchal society. Second, she's a barren widow. Third, she exhibits a faith that is shaky at best. And here's what I mean. Look what she tells Ruth about Orpah. She says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's basically telling her to go and follow a false god. The god of the Moabites. That is not something you would expect. Uh, uh, That is not someone that you would expect God to use in his plan. So how does Naomi become a part of his plan? And this, this is the final and third point. By emulating God's character trait of haste, we are more likely to be participants in his plan. By, by emulating God's character trait of haste, we're more likely to become participants in this plan. Now, that word that I used, haste, it's spelled H-E-S-E-D. H-E-S-E-D. It's a Hebrew word, but it's pronounced like haste, like speedy, fast, right, when you're rushing. And it's this cluster of concepts. It's part of God's own character. It's one of these words that doesn't have an easy English uh, analog. There's not a, a one-word translation for it. It's, a, it's this cluster. It involves love and mercy, right? grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. Right? This is a trait of God. He is these things. Another way to describe it is acting for the benefit of another without regard to the advantages that it might bring a sort of selflessness. Though Naomi was flawed in her theology, she was acting towards Orpah and Ruth out of a sense of love and loyalty and kindness. And it's acting with that sense of haste that paved the way for what happens next. So let's go back to the text. Chapter 1, now I'm in verse 16. Remember, this is right after Naomi urges Orpah and Ruth to leave. And Orpah apparently thinks it over and she decides to stay in Moab, right? She kissed her, her mother-in-law, and then uh, we hear from Naomi that she's, she's going to stay in Moab. But Ruth said in verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And this, this is the turning point in the book of Ruth. We're starting to see that something is happening here. If Naomi was an example of an unlikely person to be used by God in his plan, 
this reaction from Ruth is totally unexpected. That Ruth, this childless Moabite woman, would so clearly emulate God's traits of kindness and loyalty and love to her Jewish mother-in-law, it must have caught Naomi completely off guard. In this passage, uh, passage, which I I think is really one of the most elegant sort of uh, uh, speeches, if you will, in the Bible, it's often a a passage that you'll sometimes hear even at weddings, right? Because uh, of that commitment and that concept of loyalty. Um, Ruth distinguishes herself in this even from the judges. After reading through judges, things uh, things can seem pretty cyclical. The people fall away from faith, God raises a leader from within to rescue them. They fall away again. And like it's on repeat. It is a cycle. But Ruth here represents another way. This foreigner embodies true covenant faithfulness. Through her, we're about to see what happens when people commit themselves to the one true God. They'll receive the benefits of God's faithfulness and find a home in covenant community. But um, before you think that I'm giving you a roadmap to whatever you consider success to be, I want you to keep this in mind. All of this is happening on God's terms, not on Ruth's terms, not on Naomi's terms, but on God's and no one else's. Consider what we've seen already in the, in the story. Famine, displacement, death, families broken apart, And most recently, the end of the same famine. How could that be a person's plan? No, this is God's plan at work. No one could have scripted this. No one would have scripted this. This is not how you would write your own story. The text goes on to say, and I'm reading again from the the second part of now verse 19 in chapter 1. It says, And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's what the name means, bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So you can probably understand Naomi's reaction. Right? I think it rings true with, some time, with, with how we sometimes approach hardship or even stress. You know, she has this kind of visceral reaction to the people in the town. They say, oh, is this Naomi? And she kind of you know, responds and she uh, sort of flies off the handle at them a little bit. Right? I don't know if, uh, if, if you're ever running late and you know, stuck in traffic, right? You're running late and you're stuck in traffic and you're sitting there. Traffic in Nashville, is, I mean, on a daily basis is getting worse. And you're sitting there and then you look up and the person uh, in front of you whose red lights you keep seeing flashing on as you're you know, stuck there and getting nowhere. You look up and they have a bumper sticker that reads, too blessed to be stressed. You grit your teeth and you contemplate laying on the horn and starting your own bumper sticker company, right? That says something like, too late to wait. Which is maybe just me, I don't know. Um, 
But in situations like that, right, we get frustrated about the, about the situation. We get frustrated about our circumstances. How often in that time do we instead give thanks for our car? How often do we give thanks that we have a job to drive to or a friend to go visit? Similarly, Naomi, who's, as I mentioned, whose name means pleasant, suggests changing her name to mean bitter because she says the Lord emptied her, her life. But what did he really do? What he really did was he gave her, an old widow, a traveling companion across the desert to help return her to her homeland where there is no more famine. Right? That's what the Lord is doing here, but she doesn't have the eyes to see. This is God's plan at work. But when Naomi's in the thick of it, when we're in the thick of it, sometimes we can't see. So back to the story, and in chapter 2, we learn that in Bethlehem, Naomi has an in-law named Boaz. He's a man of, of good standing. Some of your translations might say worthy. And that likely meant that he had uh, both wealth and that he's noble with respect to character. And it seems like a throwaway line, but there are no throwaway lines in this book. It's really the author kind of telling us, hey, put a pin in this. Right? It's, a, it's a bit of foreshadowing. It's not a trivial detail. So Ruth then asked permission, I'm paraphrasing here, she asked permission to glean in the fields. And gleaning, um, which actually has come back into fashion a little bit, at least in East Nashville, unsurprisingly, uh, Gleaning is when people would follow behind the harvesters of a field and essentially pick up the scraps that were, that were not being collected by the commercial harvesters. Right? Gleaning was also a kind of social welfare um, system, and it was actually called for by Jewish law. But we know in the time of Judges, neither the letter nor the spirit of the law was being followed. Hence, in, in chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, she, Naomi, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Did you, did you catch that? Did you catch that? The text said, she happened, she happened to come to the field owned by Boaz. So I hope that you see by now that the author is being a bit sarcastic here. Ruth is in a city called the House of Bread. There is no lack of fields that she could have, could have happened to end up in, right? But she doesn't. Of all the fields in the city, the one she picks is the one owned by a guy who's related to her deceased father-in-law. This is God's plan at work. You cannot script this. Humans cannot script this. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Which probably sounds a lot like how you talk to your boss, right? right? No, of course not. What we're, what we're meant to see is like, this is a good man. We're supposed to see that he has healthy and positive relationships with his workers. This is, this is a, a solid guy. Verse 5, then Boaz says to his, to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, uh, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she is, 
continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Basically, she's been working all day at this. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Right? She's in the thick of it. She can't see what's happening, but we know why. This is God's plan at work. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here we see the next example of haste, right? that trait of God, whereby you act for the benefit of someone else without caring what you'll get from the transaction. Boaz doesn't stand to benefit from his kindness and generosity to Ruth. It might be the legal thing to do to let her glean on his part of the field, but Boaz goes way beyond that. He invites her to walk alongside his own employees, right? He invites her to drink water that was designed for his employees. Usually that water, by the way, is drawn by foreigners, drawn out of the well by foreigners and by women, right? Instead, what does he do with this foreigner and with this woman? He elevates her to a different status, He goes further. He instructs his male workers not to touch her, right? Again, remember how vulnerable a single foreign woman must have been at this time. Boaz uses his authority to to short-circuit any acts of violence that might come, you know, Ruth's way, at least while she's working in his fields. Later that same day, Boaz's generosity extends. In verse 16, he orders his men, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her. uh, Leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. I mean, who is this guy? He basically just gave the order to his workers to go ahead and pull out some of the stalks that otherwise would have been sold and just, just leave it there so she can find it and pick it up and she'll have plenty to eat. Right? This is not a normal thing. If you're a small business owner, that's probably not how you run your business. Right? But that's what Boaz is doing. It's that generosity, it's that kindness, it's that, it's that mercy. And Ruth does have enough. In fact, she takes, so, uh, she takes home so much uh, grain that it, it says it would have filled the trough. Naomi, as you might imagine, she can't believe her eyes. She said, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She doesn't know what field Ruth ended up in at this point. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So at this point in the story, Ruth continues working in Boaz's field through the end of the harvest season. But she and Naomi, they have to realize, they have to realize that there is a plan at work that goes beyond their ability to forecast what will happen next. You think about all that they've been through. Famine and refugee status. Widowed. 
heartbroken at the loss of husbands and sons. But now, they've got work. They've got plenty to eat. They're finding favor from a well-regarded leader in the city. They could not have scripted this. But God's plan is at work. And God didn't just start paying attention when Boaz enters the scene. He was ever-present. And I think that's the hard thing for us to keep in mind. That he's present during the strife, right? He's present during the heartache. He's present in the lean times and in the times of plenty. Uh, when, when things happened, yesterday was a big day in college football. Well, if your team lost, he was there. And your job loss, something a little bit more serious, he's there. And the loss of a friend or a loved one, the one true God's eternal plan is at work at those times. And thankfully, God's plan doesn't call for us to be perfect before we can be used. The second point, he often uses the least likely to fulfill his plan. Naomi doubted and her faith was imperfect. Ruth was not a Jew by birth. Both were widows, childless women, some of the most vulnerable members of their society. But they were not a fallback option. They were chosen. And you want to be used in his kingdom work? But you think you're not smart enough, you're not rich enough, you're not good enough, you're not important enough? Praise God! If you were those things, you might fall into the same trap of the judges and think that God's plan is dependent upon you. It's not. Right? We're dependent upon him. And, and our challenge, um, especially if you are, are a follower of Jesus, it's our duty, I think, is to act from a place of true thanksgiving, right? To emulate God's trait, that trait of haste that I've been talking about, that love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, loyalty, benevolence, covenant faithfulness. By doing this, we might have eyes to see God's plan at work. And we'll find out that we are a part, we too are a part of that divine plan. So earlier I was telling you, the story of the man whose life seemed to go from just bad to worse at every turn. And when I stopped, he was in the hospital having just received a bad blood transfusion and contemplating like, what the rest of his life might have in store. Well, a number of years later, thanks to the generosity of a, a family friend, he received a spot in this 18-month residential substance abuse treatment center paid for by those veterans' benefits that he didn't think a whole lot of years prior. The center was non-denominational, but it required daily Bible reading and offered study groups. Uh, And he came to faith in Jesus and left the program sober. He later reconciled with much of his family, his diseases being treated and been controlled. And by most measures, he's in remarkably good health. This man is an unlikely person to be cast in the role of one of the millions of God's success stories. But we don't get to script God's plan. God alone does that. And the dire circumstances of today, whatever you're dealing with, it doesn't mean that all is lost. All those years ago, when I heard the preacher say that he may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. We could not have imagined 
could not have imagined the redemption story that God had in mind for that lost man, my biological father, my Nana's son. Right? Our vision of God was so limited. And Naomi could not have imagined that she would be rescued by Ruth. She definitely couldn't have guessed that this Moabite woman would go on to be the grandmother of the greatest Jewish king in history. That her family line would eventually extend from Bethlehem all the way to the cross at Calvary. Praise God for his plan and for his providence. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you are ever-present with a plan to redeem your people. We thank you that in your kingdom work, you can use flawed people, people like us, that you don't turn us away, that you don't require us to be perfect before we come, Lord, but you just ask us to come, that you can do the hard work, and you have indeed done the hard work. We thank you, Lord, for treating us not as we deserve to be treated, but instead with loving kindness, with generosity, with mercy and grace, with faithfulness according to your covenants. And I pray, Lord, that we would respond in kind, that by your Spirit, we would live in a manner that emulates your character. Lord, just as you used Ruth, the unlikeliest of people, to maintain the family line that would ultimately lead to Christ, would you use us? Would you use us equally unworthy to lead those around us to the very same Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ? Amen.